And if you're able, would you stand for a moment longer and turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. We're going to read verses 24 through 28 of Daniel, chapter 6. This is the word of our Lord. Daniel 6, starting verse 24. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and his works, signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are God who speaks. We pray that you be with uh, Scott as he open up your word to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday, uh, Pastor Lero was preaching through Ephesians 6, and uh, he was in verses 10 and following, and he was preaching on standing firm in your faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, lest we fall under the attack of Satan. The common theme between his message and mine today is to reiterate that as a believer, to stand firm under the attack And to be prepared to die for your faith, you need to be well-trained in your spiritual disciplines and in the means of grace. Believers are called to obey God regardless of perceived consequences and threats. And I want us to consider Daniel and what we can learn from his lifestyle, his behavior, and his faith to strengthen us in our spiritual disciplines. Certainly the account of Daniel is a familiar one. Uh, to most people, especially if you've been raised in the church. However, I do hope to shed some new light on a familiar passage, and hopefully you'll glean something new from today's message that you hadn't learned in your personal devotions or in your childhood Sunday school lessons. And I do believe that this is a, a timeless passage, as all of God's Word is, but I also want to emphasize that it seems that maybe in our modern moment in America, it may not be too far in the distant future where we are called to decide between following God or following man, obeying man's decree or obeying God. So let's begin by setting the stage for Daniel's trial by reading together Daniel 6, verses 1 through 3. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. 
Daniel 6 is a historic account. It's not just a great story. And uh, to give a little bit of reference of the historicity, the first year of Daniel, uh, I'm sorry, of Darius as the Persian king over Babylon was around 538 BC. And Daniel's, Daniel chapters 5, 6, and 9 all happened within the same year of Darius's first reign. And an interesting point, although it is purely speculative, is that the prayer of Daniel 9 is possibly the same prayer or a similar prayer that Daniel would have been praying when Daniel's enemies turned him over to King Darius. By now, though, Daniel would be around 81 years old. He entered captivity around the age of 15 in 605 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon first subdued Jerusalem. So Daniel was in captivity for the last 66 years. For further context, Daniel 5, again happening in the same year, it concludes with the defeat and death of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And this was the end of the Babylonian Empire. Belshazzar was the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. And in the Semitic languages, there's no word for grandson. So you'll see in scripture that Nebuchadnezzar is described as the father of Belshazzar. And it seems the impression is given in chapter 5 that maybe Daniel's uh, popularity is waning, uh, perhaps because of his old age, but, but more likely because of the transitions of the, the reign of, 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 from King Darius to his son-in-law and now to Belshazzar. However, the impact of Daniel's ministry would, would have an enduring legacy with Nebuchadnezzar and the heirs of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, but then also the transition of kingdoms. In Daniel 5, the aged queen mother is introduced, juxtaposed to her foolish and imprudent son, Belshazzar, and it's decades after the death of King Nebuchadnezzar. And the setting is that Belshazzar is playing the fool, uh, feasting during the throes of war and, and the impending defeat of his kingdom, and he is met by the hand of God in a revelation that he nor his wise men can understand or interpret. The queen mother, however, brings sage advice and introduces her son to Daniel. And in chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, she states, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. And when Daniel was called in to bring the interpretation, he would continue his witness to God, to the next generation, declaring to Belshazzar, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. He knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Belshazzar, however, would not humble himself and repent. And so he was defeated that night and put to death. And now Daniel 6 describes the new Medo-Persian king, Darius, coming in and setting up his kingdom and his structure of government. Now, the king likely had heard of the events of the banquet night and also of the, the wisdom and the reputation of Daniel. And so he called upon Daniel to play a key role in the transitioning government. 
Daniel was originally one of the top three governors put in place to govern and supervise the 120 satraps of the kingdom. But following the transitional events, it's inferred that Darius had personal interaction with Daniel. And having seen the extraordinary giftedness of Daniel, um, was preparing to appoint him as the chief over all the governors and satraps. Darius's behavior in this chapter will illustrate that he had tremendous respect and admiration for Daniel. One could easily go so far as to infer from, the, from this text that Darius is a friend of Daniel. However, enter the antagonists in verse 4 through 9. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. In these verses, we are introduced to the prideful and corrupt administrators who not only have it out for Daniel, they have it out for the king. Darius wanted to put Daniel in charge because Daniel was trustworthy and Darius wanted to avoid any loss to the kingdom. These other administrators were jealous of the preferential treatment to Daniel. This is certainly clear, but there's also implication that they were out to get whatever they could for themselves, and they were angry that the king would establish a protocol of accountability. Of note as well, where our text reads, they thronged before the king, it should be understood that they raged against the king. What is happening here in Daniel 6 is the same action that's recounted in Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The psalmist inquires. Well, these men were raging and plotting against their king, and so they banded together to coerce their will upon King Darius. Well, let's turn our attention back to Daniel. Certainly, Darius was positively impacted by the faithfulness of Daniel, yet Daniel's life also affected his enemies as well. Of this, the Christian should not be surprised. Uh, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, the other, a fragrance from life to life. And Daniel 6 illustrates that in every effort to bring a charge against Daniel, his enemies could only target his faith. Consider the faith and the character of Daniel. Verse 3 refers to Daniel's excellent spirit, as was also attested to by the queen mother in chapter 5. I'm sure Daniel was a pretty cool guy, but what we should note is that his excellent spirit was certainly an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in his, in his life. And not only did Darius observe this excellent spirit, but Daniel's detractors did as well. And they observed and reported on his work ethic. Concerning the kingdom, they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. My favorite Daniel commentator, doctor, and professor Stephen Miller explains, Daniel was neither politically corrupt, he was not dishonest, nor negligent in the performance of his work. 
Daniel was of such high moral integrity that his detractors could find no other reason to accuse him than to fabricate a scheme. And they realized that that scheme had to be an attack against his faith. Christians, this should scream at you for your attention and your replication. Is your moral integrity and work ethic so strong that the only charge against you could be addressed against your faith? In 1 Peter 3, Peter encourages this lifestyle. He affirms, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Daniel had already established himself as a man of regular prayer, which uh, had incited these administrators to pursue his harm in that way. But as Daniel was wont to do, he continued in his regular practice of, of, of prayer and worship. And the text tells us in verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with the windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. He was known for coming before the Lord three times a day in prayer like clockwork, and he would continue to do it regardless of whether it was deemed legal or not. And in this case, Daniel knew that he was breaking the law because he, the text tells us that he knew that the document was signed forbidding prayer to any other, God or man, than to King Darius, but he was determined to obey God regardless. And this is clarified in verse 10. It's, the text says that now when Daniel knew that this, the writing was signed, he went home and prayed. He went home to pray as he always had three times that day. And this again showed the courage of Daniel to rely on his faith in Yahweh, regardless of potentially, the suf- potentially suffering the consequences that man might impose for his obedience to God over men. The compelling questions for the modern Christian are, first, are you so faithful in your spiritual disciplines that it could be used as evidence against you? I had a Bible college professor that always liked to state that he, his hope was that the authorities would come after him first uh, because his lifestyle so echoed his faith. If a burglar was watching your home, Could he rely on your regular church attendance for that opportune break-in? Does your neighbor know not to ask you to mow his lawn on Sunday because that is your Sabbath? Does the visitor to your home observe family devotions, family worship in the evening, and your early rise in the morning for personal devotions? I'm certainly not stating that any of us are perfect in this endeavor, but is it your modus operandi, your default method of operation? Second, are these spiritual disciplines so habitual that if they, were to, if they were to become illegal, would your natural reaction be to continue to do them? Or are you only spurred to regular church attendance if the government declares it illegal to worship? Would you only be inclined to spurn the authorities with private prayer and family worship because the, it seems a, a threat against your religious liberty? It's becoming the, uh, the case in many instances that the woke left and the cancel culture, cancel culture are attempting to censor the speech of those who are even tied to religious organizations that are faithful to the word of God in its descriptions of manhood, of womanhood, womanhood um, of marriage and family and so on. 
And I'm not saying that you need to make yourself a public nuisance, but what is the evidence against you if our government were to turn its attention against the Christian faith? Another key observation that should be made at this point is that despite demonstrating through chapters 1 through 5 that Daniel was a recipient of special wisdom, of vision, and prophecies, yet he is still characterized as one who reads the scripture and prays three times a day. Commentator Paul House notes, extraordinary experience, experiences do not replace normal devotional habits. Daniel persevered through discipline and hope. Visions and dreams and conversations with angels did not come every day. Similarly, Calvin observes, although Daniel was an interpreter of dreams, he was not so elated with confidence or pride as to despise the teaching delivered by other prophets. And if you recall, recall the impetus for Daniel's prayer in 9, it was because he was re- researching and praying for the restoration of Israel from captivity in his study of Jeremiah. We are looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ in power and glory. And of these things, Scripture is not silent. Believers are called to be alert and grounded in Scripture. Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 43 and 44. But know this, that if, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And if you're able to turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians 5, in, in verses 1 through 8, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 8, Paul writes, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Paul here is echoing the teaching of Jesus that he expected these believers already knew. He continues, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. The subjects Paul is referring to here as they are unbelievers of the same disposition as those in the days of Noah and the scoffers that Peter recalls in, in, the, in the last days, that they're resting in the peace and safety of the times. But Paul warns, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You believers must be alert and armed with the truth of Scripture. We need not be surprised at the return of our Lord, and with the armor of God, we can stand against the assaults of the evil one. And Daniel demonstrates for us, even as a prophet who received his bind, inspiration and communication, this did not prevent him from employing the ordinary means of grace, the reading of God's word and prayer. And as far as I know, there is no one here who receives visions from heaven or communications with angels, so we are of less excuse. Professor Anthony Curto of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary has been often quoted saying, if you want to get hit by a train, you play on the railroad tracks. If you want to find grace, you go to where the means of grace can be found. And of this, he's speaking of the church. The ordinary means of grace wherein God primarily meets his people are through his word, chiefly preached, but also read publicly and privately, through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and through prayer. 
Daniel gave no excuses to, sh- to shirk his spiritual duties. Even in the face of persecution and the threat of death, he would not compromise his spiritual disciplines. In chapter 3, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were facing their own life and death trial, the testing of their singular worship of God, but they could do nothing else than follow Yahweh. They were not so much concerned with the outcome of that situation as much as they were in their obedience to God alone. They responded to the king by declaring their loyalty to God alone and professed God's power regardless of the result. They, they cried, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your God, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. These three men avowed, God is able to deliver us. He will deliver us, and even if he doesn't deliver us today, we will not serve any other. We will worship him alone. King Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was enraged and outraged. He was set about to defy the faith of these men and their God. But in the process, though, he was only able to accomplish the further display and the proclamation of the absolute power and sovereignty of God. For to meet these men in the furnace of their trial was none other than the pre-incarnate Son of God himself. And because of their unqualified faith in the full supremacy of God, King Nebuchadnezzar was left to recognize and to declare it among the nations. And we see a parallel here in chapter 6. Now it was Daniel's turn to display his faithfulness to the sovereignty of God. For these wicked administrators, having caught Daniel in the defiance of the decree, went back to Darius. They validated his remembrance of the, 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 the decree, and they proceeded in verse 13 to declare that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. This is when it clicked for Darius. He realizes that he was duped and that he was taken advantage of because of his pride and his fear of men. Verse 14 recounts, And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased in him, with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Observe two things. First, he acknowledged his displeasure in himself and took responsibility for his sin. Second, he was determined to save Daniel, if at all possible. And I want us to notice that Darius was active until the sun would set to see if anything could be done. He didn't try one solution and quit, but he was laboring until he was out of time. Then, being compelled to put Daniel in the lion's den at the last stroke of day, he fretted all night until the first hint of dawn. In fact, the text doesn't simply say he couldn't sleep. It poetically asserts that his sleep fled from him. There was great anxiety and burden that rested on Darius that night. At the first hint of morning, having fulfilled the legal obligations of the punishment, Darius's heart desired to see to the well-being of Daniel in hopes that his God had saved him. In verse 19 and 20, Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions, And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? The wicked administrators were determined that Daniel should suffer for his faith and obedience to the true God. Yet in the end, Yahweh demonstrated his power and authority. And so King Darius, as Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 3, would likewise proclaim the sovereignty of God to save the 
it's certainly speculation, but the the translators of the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and many commentators believe that that it also could have been the pre-incarnate Son of uh, Son of God, Jesus Himself, that came to comfort Daniel through his nighttime ordeal. But it's also possible that that it's an illustrative case of Psalm ninety-one eleven, which affirms, "For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways." Yet Daniel was rescued either way. There is a solemn warning, though, that I wish to make at this point. Although Daniel 3, Daniel 6, and and other passages demonstrate to us the power of God to deliver us from trouble, we are warned in the New Testament that believers are called to suffer. And just as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah acknowledged that God was not obliged to rescue them from that trial of death, we need to be cautioned that uh, we are called to suffer and that our rescue may not result in this life or justice in this life. Christ encourages us, however, there is a blessing for those who suffer for him. He states, he preaches, in fact, in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Believers are called today to obey God regardless of perceived consequences and threats. And I want us to consider the similarities and and differences between Daniel's testing and that of the apostolic father Ignatius. In AD 110, Ignatius was arrested and marched to Rome to face what he knew would be his martyrdom. Eusebius notes that uh, Ignatius was was thrown to the lions, but during his march to Rome, Ignatius wrote seven letters in which he, he could have identified with Daniel and trusted or assumed that God would rescue him. But instead, he knew that he was not on the same path as Daniel. And, to his, and in his letter to the Ephesians, he wrote, I hope indeed by your prayers to have the good fortune to fight with the wild beasts in Rome so that by doing this, I can be a real disciple. And to the Romans, I am God's wheat and I am being ground by the teeth of wild beasts to make a pure loaf for Christ. And later, what a thrill I shall have from the wild beasts that are ready for me. I hope they will not I hope that they will make short work of me. I shall coax them on to eat me up at once and not to hold off as sometimes happens through fear. And if they are re, if they are reluctant, I shall force them to it. Now is the moment I am beginning to be a disciple. May nothing seen or unseen begrudge me making my way to Jesus Christ. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil. Only let me get to Jesus Christ. In a discussion of this, uh, a friend of mine concluded, my takeaway is that Ignatius could have looked at the story of Daniel and assumed that God would save him. When faced with troubles, I see many Christians do this. They see their situation as a recapitulation of a biblical story. Maybe, but perhaps it is better to recognize that if God wanted the biblical story to be yours, he would have had you born then. God has each of us on a different path from biblical heroes. What he is doing with us may be no less miraculous, but it is likely very, very different. Things may not work out miraculously as it did for Daniel. It may have an Ignatius ending. We must acknowledge that it's God's choice, not ours. He, God exalted the one and allowed the other to be killed. May God continue to raise up Daniel's and Ignatius's for his glory. And even today, believers are called to re- obey God regardless of perceived consequences and threats. 
Our calling to obedience is demonstrated in our faithfulness to the spiritual disciplines commanded in Scripture. Christians are called to pray. Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. And later call to me, and I will answer you, and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Isaiah commands, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. David likewise confesses, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. In the New Testament, James instructs, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Paul to the Philippians exhorts, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul commands, pray without ceasing. And then later he he pleads, brothers, pray for us. Christians are called to corporate worship. The author of Hebrews teaches, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And in Paul's words to Pastor Timothy, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scriptures, to exhortation, to teaching. And and this includes corporate praise, as he notes in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to your hearts to God. The, The final encouragement I want us to draw from this passage is to realize and remember that regardless of the injustice we may suffer in this life, the final course of God's justice is certain. There are many wicked throughout Scripture that believe that justice or judgment was not coming. And this was the case in Noah's day as he preached and the application that Peter brings of it in his second epistles to the scoffers coming the last days. I think of Daniel continually lamenting in the Psalms the impression that the wicked are um, thriving and the righteous are being trampled underfoot. I consider uh, Haman as well in the book of Esther, who thought that he could torment the people of God with, with impunity, and yet he faced ironic justice, just as the, these wicked administrators would in Daniel's day. Daniel 6.24 recounts, And the king gave the command, and they brought these men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the pit." There's an interesting turn of phrase here in verse 24 that we lose in the English translation, which further screams the irony of the justice brought before these men. In Aramaic, the author states these wicked men had eaten the pieces of Daniel. And this is an idiom referring to false accusation or slander, eating the pieces of the one accused, bit by bit eating away at the reputation of an innocent man. These men not only figuratively were eating the pieces of Daniel, but their great desire was that the lions would literally eat the pieces of Daniel and they would be rid of him. However, Darius was greatly lamenting his foolishness and and finding great relief that Daniel was found vindicated and safe, commanded that these wicked men, their wives and their children, would be thrown to the lions to have their pieces literally eaten in just judgment. The kingdom, uh, the, the judgment is coming and God will bring all men to account. And so we end as we have begun. Darius 
proclaims to the nations, tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Believers are called today to obey God regardless of perceived consequences and threats. And may we find encouragement to, uh, in the faith of Daniel to obey God as he obeyed God in his spiritual discipline so that, that we may similarly, similarly be drawn to obedience and replication. Grow in your, your habits of prayer, scripture reading, and corporate worship so that you may be found faithful and have the strength to endure the sufferings and trials that God will bring into your life. And I pray, too, that you observe the reality of the coming judgment. If you are a Christian, find hope and strength in the understanding that justice is coming and God will reward the faithful. God is patient and merciful, yet judgment is sure. Today is the day of salvation. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we do rejoice in your sovereign ability to save, to rescue. We, We rejoice in the salvation of our sins and that we can stand in Christ alone and his imputed righteousness. And I I pray that you would give us courage and strength in the days of trial and testing ahead for us, that we would not forsake the faith, and that you would give us strength to endure. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.